Helen Rouse is one of the most prolific indie makers I've ever met. And she worked on coaching projects, SaaS products, plugins, physical products, marketplaces, mini tools, info products, really almost any type of product you can think of. And in my conversation with her, she explained the thinking behind her absolutely fascinating approach when it comes to these side projects. But I really don't want to spoil anything here at this point. So let's hear it from Helen. Yeah, so my, my full-time role is at MakerPad. I also work for Transistor. And then I've got a collection of side projects that I work on in, in free time and start new things in my free time. I've kind of done some additional qualifications this year in project management and things like that. So yeah, I guess it's a wide range of things really, with my main focus being MakerPad at the moment. Oh, cool. So you're the community manager at MakerPad. That's right, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't aware that this is really your main gig because uh, you you have so many side projects and maybe that's also yeah taking a lot of time. But I really want to go through all the list or at least the most interesting ones that you have because you put out this amazing side project review, as, as you call it, where you listed all the projects you worked on uh, since 2008, exactly. And... What I'm curious about is, of course, how you started doing like indie making stuff. I guess, I guess the one thing to remember with my side projects is that it seems like a lot, but it's been over a long time. So it may be that I create maybe three or four things a year and it may be that those are created over a weekend. So they also are kind of built with the specific thing in mind that they won't necessarily take up much time. So things are either self-service or digital downloads. There have been products in the past that have taken up quite a bit of time, like physical products and shipping, things like that. But for the most part, I kind of focus on those and then they've either been sold or sort of retired. And then I kind of look at what the next project is. But in terms of going back to the beginning, I think my main driver was around about 2010. I think I got, got a uh, an iMac. I won a competition at the job I was at at the time and I um, used the vouchers that I won on a, a new iMac. And I think that gave me perhaps a bit more possibilities in what I could create and just meant that I was perhaps spending a bit more time working on technology and working on side projects, really. Cool. And the first project that you listed, at least, was called 1% Method, and it's a digital product Product you launched. About... So that, that goes back to probably pre-making things. It was, it was part of a, a community. So I guess this links back into perhaps why I'm community manager at the moment for MakerPad. It was like on a financial forum that's quite popular in the UK, and it was just a, a way of... It was more like a written method, like a framework for people who wanted to hit a savings goal um, or pay off you know, their college their college loans and things like that. It was just kind of more of a, a framework for people to use and it was, wasn't really a sold product at all. It was just something that kind of had several hundred members that were interested in following it. And my kind of aim was to perhaps turn that into a more formal written ebook or something that people could download and that's kind of something I've spent time on it just it was one of those things that where you might create something and you're quite surprised at how many people seem to it seems to resonate with or the number of people that think that it's helpful and it's just kind of something I spent my uh, spare time on working towards building a savings goal and things like that and uh, yeah it was just kind of the start into growing a community and speaking to uh, members and things 
things like that. So it was kind of like, a, like an early community as part of a, a financial forum platform that I was a member of. And yeah, it was just something that I kind of wrote out and made me realize that there were lots of people out there who perhaps wanted to you know, use projects that I made. Cool. And even though it was in the financial niche, you listed that you made no money from, from this. So there was no monetization at this part? There was no, there was no, there was no decision to monetize it. It wasn't ever a paid product. It was basically a community and a method, a written framework that people could follow. But there's no reason why in future why I couldn't write that into a, a paid product or you know make other side projects around that. It's still something that interests me. I'm very interested in the the fire movement, financial independence, retire early, and I think there's a lot of possibilities around monetization in the future but just so happened to be the first thing that caught my eye i was kind of working on something that had no intention of being monetized and i was kind of surprised to see how many people kind of followed along with it really cool and is like the fire thing something you do yourself so i i'm not an expert or i have any deep uh, deep knowledge but I know a bit, of course, about it and Mr. Money Must Take and all these kind of things. Um, <laughs> Possibly not so much at the moment. Possibly something I'll look into more in the future. But it's definitely something that I think goes along with perhaps working remotely or being in a location independent. That seems to be kind of one of the key, key parts that appeal to me, which is, fortunately, I'm in a position to, to do that at the moment. So, yeah, I guess it's something that I might look into more in the future. And I do kind of follow along with various communities and things like that and just keep up to date with with kind of articles and, and interesting news that comes out of that, that kind of niche, really. Oh, awesome. So, and one thing I then noticed when I had a look at your list is that immediately after this first product, you had two. One was career coaching and the second one, wedding photography, photography where you really immediately made money. <laughs> Though this is really uh, unusual, I think, because uh, most people have many attempts to make money online. And you started really strong immediately. Like you have this rating in terms of pound signs and immediately three and four, which, which is the highest rating you have in your list. And already the first two products ended up. So, Yeah, I guess so. I think one of those was, was probably wedding photography, which was, it was definitely still a side project. It was something that I did alongside uh, my full-time job along with a partner. And I guess the nature of wedding photography is if you are booking clients, which we were kind of quite immediately, then that is going to surpass any kind of perhaps small revenue that you make on digital products, perhaps. But I guess that was, you know, something that I spent seven years on. It was probably, it's probably not fair to call it a side project in some <laughs> ways, even though it was done alongside a full-time role. It probably was one of the projects I worked the hardest on and it was very enjoyable, but it was very difficult to do alongside a full-time role as well so it was definitely a great experience I learned a lot about producing physical products and albums and prints and things like that and also dealing with perhaps you know the most important day of, of people's sort of lives of getting married and, and enjoying people's uh, wedding days and things like that so that was something I did for around about seven years and there were also a lot of these projects these other side projects that were made alongside doing a full-time role and doing wedding photography it's sort of weekends and and the fact it's quite seasonal in nature so there's it's quite busy in summer and less so in winter so that's you know we ran quite a for a long portion of these other projects so it's possible to have side projects running alongside side projects <laughs> one <laughs> on top of the other so that's how how it kind of worked out really 
So uh, wedding photography was not your main gig at the time and you also did it as a side project or? That's correct, yeah. Ah, okay, gotcha. So, and at the same time, I guess you started quite a few um, projects related to the photography niche. So you listed, for example, Photo Refinery, which was a service to yeah, restore and colorize photos, but you also made an attempt to produce a physical product like, what was it? A canvas camera city bag. I yeah. think you got, you listed and also like smaller projects, affiliate sites, you, you got quite a few here. So yeah, I'm curious how you ended up with these kind of projects. Do, was it just randomly or did you try to solve problems you had yourself? Yeah, definitely. I think whether it was kind of particular inspiration from people asking us alongside photography work, do we restore photos and, and just seeing if that was a viable niche. I think a lot of people think they've got to pick one idea and it's got to be successful straight away. And for me, I tend to pick something completely different every time. And each, each time I pick a new technology or a new business model, whether that's a physical product or pre-sales or a, a different type of um, platform to launch it on. And I guess the main thing is my main purpose around these side projects was to learn. And I guess repeating the same project over and over wasn't going to help me learn new things really. So while it may seem quite random, they're all different areas of interests. But I kind of found over the years that they all kind of link back to perhaps a couple core themes, which is around either images and design and graphic design, that kind of thing. So photography and, and image related things. I think most I would say probably 75 to 80% of my projects can be linked back to the, that kind of core interest, really. Yeah, this is also something I noticed um, that you, so I've never seen anything like your list because you have really tried everything, it seems. So <laughs> you tried like every possible kind of business model from physical products on one end to affiliate sites to service um, to apps. It's really incredible. And yeah, maybe... Uh, we can already talk about this now. I'm curious about your experiences with this different kinds of products, because as you said, most people are happy if they find just one thing that works fairly well, and then just they just do it over and over again. So someone finds that uh, programming SaaS apps is working for them, and then they just focus on that. But it's not like this, this for you. you. You've really tried everything. And <laughs> so I'm curious to hear what your experiences are and how they, how they compare and yeah yeah i think the goal for me was to learn about these different business models and i guess there were things that did do better than i expected i think for me productized service the one i did around podcast transcription did did quite well so that went straight from kind of being an idea to being a project with clients that i was working on and i guess you kind of notice when things have got the, the momentum of their own and it can be quite surprising what you think will take off and what you think will be most difficult I don't think I've tried everything I still think there's different <laughs> business models there's different things I think you know I've got on the list somewhere that I think I'll try at some point I definitely really enjoy making physical products as well and shipping them out and then seeing people receive them and now, in terms of digital products, you would think that physical products, you know, there's a, a much lower margin. You can make a much closer to 100% profit on a digital product than you can on a, a physical product. But I think 
there's something more in the e-commerce initiative that I'm kind of drawn to really. I think I like that kind of designing of a product and then you're kind of left with the products to ship out on a daily basis rather than sort of maintenance of a code base or maintenance of an app that doesn't necessarily appeal to me as much. I kind of like producing either content or or, or shipping products out to people and I kind of I think the lot people need to think about what is the long-term work that a product a project will produce for you or you might enjoy coding a SaaS app but will you enjoy supporting customers will you enjoy uh, maintaining the code base and dealing with all the business documentation and things that comes along with that the a lot of projects get started based on what it takes to create the actual project and not necessarily what it takes to create the business around that so maybe have a think about what type of work you find easy to do and for me I find kind of creating content or coming up with new ideas and speaking to people and communities that is the kind of more sustainable kind of long-term work that I enjoy doing really. Yeah that makes makes perfect sense and you mentioned that you really have a list with business models that you want to try and that you have already tried that sounds super cool and though I never heard of anyone having this approach so it really seems that your goal is not to maximize earning, but really to maximize how much you'll learn. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, definitely. I think I think possibly because I haven't hit upon a project that has, has been kind of like made and forced me to decide if it's something I want to do full time. There was a possibility of doing that with wedding photography and it was kind of that run for seven years. And I think there's definitely the opportunity for if if something came up that I would dedicate more time to it but for me the the main purpose is just to kind of like see as many of my ideas as possible come to life like you kind of have these kind of guesses and hypotheses that this may work this may not work how would this work in practice and then you get to test them out and it's kind of like lots of little experiments and it kind of helps you to not take things that don't go quite right so you know personally it's not you know it's just one idea of many it doesn't have to be your whole identity and your whole personality you can just think well there's plenty more where that came from we'll just create something new and and that might help people more that might deliver you know solve a problem better or deliver a better product so yeah i guess it's it's just a, a genuine curiosity to see what works and hopefully help me to get better at, at building businesses so that when a bigger idea comes along i can have the skills to better manage that really yeah, that's super inspiring. So you really take this whole, let's say, building a portfolio of small bets idea seriously. You're putting lots of stuff out there, seeing what sticks and are always happy to shut things down when they don't work out. And since you are doing so much, there's no emotional attachment and you're, it's easier to make this kind of decisions. And this makes, makes really a lot of sense. And I really like it. And I also noticed that you, you have a few projects that you started many years ago and that are still going strong. So you, for example, in 2011, you started Tiny Hello and Names Ace. So, and they uh, seem to be quite profitable and are running now for almost 10 years. And I would like to hear, hear about, a bit more about it, in particular, for example, about Tiny Hello, because it's uh, a physical product that you ship out to so that people can order and then it gets really shipped out to their houses. And nevertheless, you noted that it's not much work for you to keep it up. So I'm really curious how, how this works. 
Yeah, I guess with it being a physical product, um, just to give you kind of background, it's kind of like a gift-based product where you can send like a handwritten letter to people around the world. So it tends to be quite popular at Christmas time for kind of like like letters to Santa or letters to the Tooth Fairy or the Easter Bunny or things like that. Like it's like a fun novelty site and it's the kind of thing that can just exist and run in the background without costing anything to run. And then when a seasonal time comes along, it can generate some orders and those can be shipped out. So it's kind of like, it's an asset that just ticks along in the background. It has been kind of, it does get quite busy sometimes and sometimes it can be quite quiet. So it's not necessarily generating consistent income, but part of me, I kind of would like to perhaps develop the brand into something else, maybe like partially more of a stationary line than a physical product. So I've kept that name around because I kind of feel that that brand resonates with a lot of products or perhaps things I would want to do in the future. But I have also considered selling it as well and, and sort of been talking to people about possibilities of somebody else taking that over. So it is something that's kind of run in the background. I think if you build a project, a project that doesn't necessarily cost you money to run necessarily, then you have the freedom to not have to shut it down or tear it apart. You can just it's not when you build a project it's not necessarily always the right time for that project to take off and sometimes things are seasonal like this particular project and you can just kind of wait until new opportunities come around for it you don't have to kind of like dismantle a project if it's not a multi-million pound generating enterprise within the first six weeks you can you know you can keep it and it can be an asset and I guess one thing to mention is that this list that I've kind of made over this sort of 10, 12 years of these projects, this was something I hadn't shared until sort of early this year, in January this year. So I kind of spent 10 years of making these things and not really, and kind of people would only necessarily know about one of these products. So I guess the main thing is, the, I guess the reason we're talking today really is the fact that I've kind of shared my background of making and, and that it's come together to be a kind of more of a collection of of ideas and and sort of trial and error and I guess I would encourage people to do that more really I, it's taken me 10 years to realize that I need to share things more and share the story behind things more I would kind of start a new project and that would be quite separate from everything else and I would share it in different places and again people just wouldn't necessarily know about the other 15 things that were going on in the background at the same time so yeah I would definitely encourage people to share the things that have worked and not worked at the same time Awesome. Yeah. And I totally agree at, at least that you should really be like a superstar in the indie maker scene because you've like, I've never seen anyone with so much experience and I've talked to like <laughs> quite famous people already, but um, really no one has like such a um, great variety in their portfolio. So I guess you're also doing consulting on this uh, on the side, I think. But yeah, you have really probably lots of things to share on all kinds of products and you're really able to talk about like how an affiliate project compares to a physical project compares to a digital product and yeah at least i would love to read stuff so have you ever put out like anything what would i call it like an like a systematic ebook or course where you really share the, all the experiences you made during in this journey in this I've done a couple of ebooks well actually I've done a, a short one called the launch list which was more a case of like 
lots of different places to share your project when you're coming up to a launch. And that was kind of like a really quick, like two week project as part of like a Gumroad challenge that was written about five years ago. And it still does get the odd sale now. And it's something that I definitely should update because, you know, there's, there's definitely places in that book that have probably shut down or the don't quite operate in the same way anymore so I should definitely update that and I think that would do would do reasonably well it might be something that I could kind of make a, as a free product to build an audience of people who are interested in launching products that would be that would probably be quite helpful for me and then more recently one topic that has been kind of surprised me in, in terms of the interest is people interested in selling side projects and I've kind of started putting together a few chapters of possibly what might be a book, possibly what might be just some blog posts around why you should sell side projects and, and how you would go about that and the different um, ways you can put things together and, and find buyers and things like that. So what I'm trying to do is perhaps tackle one topic at a time rather than one book that would take me 10 years to write about <laughs> every different business model I've tried and that hasn't worked. So I think I'm kind of trying to find out specific topics that are interesting to people and then maybe we'll go from there. So yeah, I, I definitely think it's something that I would like to do more of. But sometimes writing about experiences feels less like, I don't know, perhaps that writing can be difficult. It can feel like more pulled towards building a new side project rather than writing about ones that are I understand how valuable it is for people to kind of see real numbers and real examples and things like that. So that's why I've kind of tried to share as much information as I can about what's been profitable and what hasn't, because I don't want people to think that, you know, pe people are making, I've been making hundreds of thousands of pounds because that's, that's not the case. Um, some months I get orders and, and some projects and some, sometimes I don't and that I'm quite fine, you know, I'm quite fine with that. And that's why I kind of do this alongside work that, you know, whether that's being a project manager or working a full-time role or contracting and consulting for startups and things like that. So yeah, I guess it's, kind of possibly will continue to be side projects and, and I hope I do have a project that comes out in the near future that's shared with more people and becomes quite popular. Yeah, I would love to read this uh, 10 year book of your <laughs> at the time. So I think there's, yeah. yeah. It'll, it'll, it'll come out in 2030. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward. Yeah. I think this is a general problem that uh, you really have like the people who are and then the people who are teachers. And of course you have like the, the joke that those who can do and those who can't teach, right? And yeah, oftentimes it's, it's the wrong kind of people who are doing this, who, who are writing these ebooks and publishing these courses because they published maybe, they launched one thing or two things that took off and maybe it was poor luck, no one, nobody knows, right? And then they are um, writing about as if they found the secret to the universe. And yeah. I'm always very skeptical of this kind of thing uh, unless someone has really a real track record, right? So you, you would be in a perfect position to write this kind of thing. And I think lots of people would love to pay money for it. So just my opinion that, uh, yeah, re you really should be the kind of person who writes this kind of book about how, how to be an indie maker really this general purpose book but also the project you just mentioned because this is also something i noticed is that lots of people and more and more people get interested in buying and selling projects so this is really currently taking off so it's a yeah it's a great great idea and yeah it's I'm fully confident that it will be successful so i have no doubt that that really sounds interesting and so you will probably tweet about it when it comes out right so 
yeah, I kind of, you know, I've not spent so much time on it. I've kind of like written the few first few chapters and got the layout of the book sorted. But maybe it's probably should be my last project of 2022, maybe put up a, a landing page or something for it to see if there's any interest there and just uh, test it out. And it can be my last experiment of 2020. <laughs> yeah, get a few pre-orders, right? So <laughs> just to test the water would be would be cool. So, and then jumping back to your journey, shortly after Tiny Hello, or even before that, there's a project I wanted to talk about is Make Notes, because it is also a physical product and you never launched it. And just this year you decided now, is the, now the time has come, right? So uh, you're doing it now or... <clears throat> yeah, it's something that I've kind of spent a bit of time on this year. I guess with the physical product, um, a product, you've got to obviously have either the time or the, the pre-orders or the resources to be able to fund the first batch of orders. There's always that kind of cost hurdle that you've got to kind of like outlay before you've got the product in your hands. And I think in the past, I've kind of deferred to projects that I could like launch instantly or that didn't cost much to set up. So I've kind of always been conscious of like, what's a product I can, a project I can start that costs nothing to launch that can be profitable from day one without even having spent anything on it apart from the domain maybe and that's about it maybe a ten dollar budget I'll allow myself <laughs> whereas with 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 kind of like physical products I want it's definitely something I wanted to do properly and it's something I wanted to perhaps spend time and resources on it in the future so I'd kind of come up with a lot of ideas come up with a lot of uh, mock-ups and was kind of looking for a time when it could be something that I could afford to do or raise pre-orders for things like that and <clears throat> it was something I kind of started mentioning to people and this list got shared around and people started asking me about it and I kind of put, put up a landing page and started collecting a list of people who were interested and um, speaking to manufacturers again which I had done uh, previously originally I kind of got specifications uh, marked up and things like that ready to kind of go to print so I guess uh, now it's kind of like just building that list up and seeing who's interested and in, in maybe something in 2021. I'll kind of hopefully be able to ship that and maybe <clears throat> and maybe go with a batch of the first 500 or, or 1,000 notebooks and see how, how that well works. I guess one thing is I would really like to see a product that I've created like in use at conventions or kind of just in the wild, so to speak, and just come across people who own a product that I've made and use it on a day-to-day -day basis. That would be really that would be really great to see. And um, I hope that's something I get to do perhaps in the next year. Yeah, what you what you just mentioned is something I also noticed when I had a look at your list that you had quite a few ideas for physical products and did like the designs and talk to manufacturers. And eventually you did never launched it because it turned out to be, to be too expensive for the first batch. So I don't know how many, but I noticed this at several times. Of course, this was one example, but also the, the canvas bag the camera seems to be one project where this happened and yeah it's it's i think pretty obviously a problem of physical products compared to digital products that you really have the, a higher monetary risk because you need to produce this kind of first batch yeah, but definitely it is getting easier though with 3d printing and pro rapid prototyping i think there are products that i've put on the list because i spent time on making like a prototype or things like that and speaking to manufacturers about the cost to get them made. And I guess the thing to think is like every physical product is different. It's um, way easier to produce a card or paper or 
a cardboard product than it is to produce something that's got electronics inside it or or even like fabric or kind of like more durable like leather goods or things like that mm-hmm. i guess with things like print on demand that has taken a lot of um, the problem out of things there's a lot more things i could produce now but it wouldn't necessarily be designed the actual product itself it would be putting a brand on an already made product and that is kind of quite different to having a i don't know a t-shirt that's a particular style and cut and fit whereas with a print on demand service you are kind of taking their sort of generic their t-shirt and putting your logo on it really so that is there's one thing i've kind of tried out this year like a t-shirt brand that is kind of for like travelers and 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 people who want to go to different places and things like that so yeah i guess with physical products you've kind of got to break it down into the the kind of materials it's made from and the cost and difficulty will be based on what you want your product to be made of really so one physical product i did ship and did make was a card deck and that was much easier because again it was a it was a paper product and that kind of like did about 50 pre-orders on uh, product hunt and that was enough to sort of like generate the first batch to be to be sort of come off the print press really so i'm hoping that with the notebooks it's something i'll be able to do justice and that might be something that is the next physical product project that i launch really looking forward to it so it will be like a notebook specifically for creatives right so this is a high level idea yeah so i guess one thing that people tend to come across in like the notebook world is that um, especially with stationery and like notebooks people tend to like perhaps more with artists that like feel like a, a notebook or a sketchbook has got to be perfect like there's like this kind of running joke that the first page of your notebook is perfect and then the next pages are just like horrible scribble and, and just it kind of descends from there really so i guess the idea with the, this notebook is that it's like a place for mistakes to be made and that this comes from something I had from an English teacher. He gave us like an exercise book at school and made us put like a sticker pledge in front of this, the front cover of the book that was basically kind of saying that this is a place for mistakes, that my best work isn't going to be in this book, but my best work will come from the ideas in this book. And I just thought it's something that I would like like to have again as an adult and to remind me that like capturing ideas and and, and being messy and, and making those mistakes is what leads you to your best work. Makes makes perfect sense. So it sounds sounds really interesting, the idea. And what I'm curious about is because I've zero experience with um, this kind of thing is how you go about finding manufacturers. So do you look just locally in your town or do you look in China? So I don't know <laughs> what do really the options are. Yeah, I guess both really. It depends on the product. If the product is quite kind of lightweight, I would probably look worldwide because the shipping costs aren't necessarily prohibitive to get it back to the UK or wherever you're based. And also the volume, if you're just selling a handful, are you going to ship it yourself? Are you going to send it to a fulfillment center? You kind of need to look at where the product, the journey of the product from from being made to the end customer, what kind of like mileage will that be? I have used manufacturers in the UK just because they were able to produce the product at a price that was kind of like competitive. But but again, in in some cases I have like tried to source the kind of canvas camera bag in the UK and found that like the certain style that I wanted was only able to be produced on machines that they've got in Italy, for example. And then that kind of like adds a whole nother complexity into dealing with people who perhaps don't speak English or dealing with, 
goods crossing borders and things like that and customs and taxes and things like that it's hard to factor in into your kind of like your profit and loss sheet whether you'll know if you'll you know what the actual cost of goods landed to your front door will be until you actually like actually place that order really so I would I would always advise people to like make a a bit of a spreadsheet matrix and like reach out to as many manufacturers as possible and give them the same specs and see who gets back to you quickly and who is helpful and and gives you ideas and not not to necessarily go with a manufacturer who just says yes yes this is possible let's place an order because what you want is a manufacturer will say well actually this this the shape you've got it here will be a problem in the machine because they won't you want people to kind of like come up with reasons and improvements for your product because they know the manufacturing process inside and outside if you have a manufacturer that tells you yes this is perfect and ready to go then you probably uh, will come across problems and more costs during the actual manufacturing process so try and find a manufacturer who will work with you and point out improvements and use their expertise and knowledge and, and that's what happened with the card deck that I made, I found a manufacturer who was really helpful and um, could print up the boxes and also some additional kind of like business cards and, and kind of like the, the cards were meant to be written on, but playing cards are normally coated both sides. So we kind of worked together to like make sure that the design was like coated on one particular side on the back, but not the front so that they could be written on and like working together with a manufacturer to actually make the product that you kind of originally envisage because the design that goes in one end of the manufacturing process isn't always what comes out as a finished product you can kind of end up making all these compromises and, and sort of cutting costs and things and then what you come out with is nowhere near the original intended the intended product really you can kind of start with this kind of like concept idea and what comes out the other end really is doesn't have any of the features which which is a real shame so I would definitely encourage you to find a manufacturer who can guide you through the process and like they know the the industry and they know where you can save money and they know what problems you'll face so yeah I think it's always interesting to get a range of 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 costs and, and prices and just add up what it would take to um get from various different places in the world and to see what what fits your kind of budget the best this is awesome advice yeah and how many manufacturers did you typically reach out to so like five or 20 or 100 i think like the emails go out to probably like 20 and then you probably get replies from like seven and then then you've probably got three or four that are actual contenders and you kind of like it's hard to keep track of the numbers sometimes because like so many emails and, and people come back to you six months later and say, do you still want that product that you asked about like 18 months ago? Or And so it tends to like, if you start quite broad, but I would kind of like make sure you know what you're asking for. Like don't necessarily go to a manufacturer with a, it's really hard to compare an idea if manufacturers are, are kind of quoting on different specs. I would definitely have your kind of, I normally start with like an initial design with all the features and that I would like to see as part of a project. So like be as wild as possible and think of all the crazy ideas you could have in a project. And then you kind of move to the technical specification of what, what can the machines actually produce? What can, you know, manufacturers actually make with their teams and, and, and kind of processes in place. And you kind of have to cut some of those ideas out and think, well, instead of having a notebook that costs 50 pounds, I need to make sure this is actually affordable and cut some of these crazy, crazy ideas out. So then you kind of whittle down into the, from the, the dream scenario into what's possible. And then you whittle down even further into what kind of cost do you want to produce it for really? So there's kind of these three stages of 
paring down your idea into something that's actually possible. And hopefully what comes out at the end is a product that's still got your original concept behind it, but is affordable for people as well. Because if you look around and you can see that, you know, there's different products selling in a particular price range, there's nothing wrong with being above and beyond that price range if you are offering um, significant value, but you've got to keep price in mind. Otherwise, it's going to be really hard, really hard to recoup recoup the costs or have any kind of profit margin in there or any costs in there for shipping and, and supplies and things like that. So, yeah, I would say start start with a wide range of suppliers and they will naturally get whittled down by people who don't reply and people who are too expensive and people who can't produce what you want. And hopefully you'll, you'll, you'll just settle on somebody who is both helpful and supportive through through the journey you're trying to take really which definitely need a supply you can kind of um, ask you know random questions or what may seem stupid questions to their industry because you are learning something completely different if you know you know if you've got a background in a particular manufacturing process then that is a huge advantage and just some experience in 3d printing will go a long way in producing prototypes if you're thinking of making something that can be prototyped on a 3d printer really so yeah i think that's become more affordable than ever and we definitely encourage people to use companies like Shapeways and things like that to produce your 3D prints if you don't have a 3D printer at home. So what I'm curious about, maybe the last question on physical products, is how you handle fulfillment. Because this is what I imagine is the scariest part for most people. So you get like all these boxes sent to your home and then you have to manage all the, the shipment stuff yourself. And how did you handle that? Did the products directly go out from the manufacturer or did they really were sent to your home and then you handled all the rest? Yeah, I think they've always been shipped out to, to me. So with like the wedding photography side of things, we had obviously professional like book binders and album makers and we would still always check the albums over before we gave them to the client. You know, we wouldn't ship them straight to the, it would be easier and probably a little bit quicker to, and, and cheaper to, to have them shipped straight to the customer. But we always wanted to check them over and, and, and check them, make sure that the layout was what we agreed and things like that, because at the end of the day, it's our work and our representation and, you know, our kind of reputation. And also for the card deck I produced, that was kind of like, I think made several batches that they came in like batches of like 50 or a hundred or something like that. And each time they would come to come to me and I would ship them out around the world. And I kind of enjoy that process. I think my kind of background is my kind of family have had a, like an e-commerce company since the nineties. And to me kind of like shipping orders out is like the enjoyable part of sending in your products out to all these different people and places around the world. And it's kind of like, kind of therapeutic in some ways to kind of just you know pack some orders and and it kind of takes you away from the kind of thinking side of the business you can kind of just you know it's kind of like productive but also kind of it's not necessarily less creative but there's lots of ways you can make creative packaging and things like that but it's just kind of nice to make sure your product is going out the door in in the kind of way you want it to and make sure the quality quality is there i guess if if i ever shipped a product that was like in the thousands or hundreds of thousands then I would probably look into some kind of fulfillment center just because the sort of like economies of scale and the money you can save and if you've got like hundreds of parcels going to a particular country each day then you can really bring down the costs and pass that on to your customer if you if you make more efficient use of your 
fulfillment center so i guess it depends on the volume you're doing and for me so far the products i've been shipping out have kind of either been one-off like custom kind of like albums or prints or things and then small products like card decks so i haven't necessarily been forced to use a fulfillment center but that would be quite interesting to see how that would go so maybe that's another another business model I Amen, yeah. try. <laughs> cool and uh, so you are not having like a seller full of unsold products so it always worked out quite well for you that you were able to sell most of the physical products you ordered or yeah, pretty much yeah. yeah i think i mean i sold the the card deck company i sold that off like end of 2018 i think it was and there was probably like a small half box of inventory that i shipped over to the new owner so they had something to get started with immediately for any orders that came in and yeah i guess i kind of tried to keep sort of costs quite low and i wanted to make sure that before i ordered another batch that there would be enough orders due to come in so i wouldn't be kind of be sitting there with a with a batch of newly printed products that had no homes to go to so i might might kind of like do a promotion or a sale <clears throat> prior to ordering a new batch and or or there may be just a particular kind of like a piece of uh, marketing that i did may kind of hit a spike in sales and that might be a good time to to order some and it can work both ways you can know you can you can be too strict on that and you can run out and not be able to capitalize on opportunities if you've got people waiting for products so hopefully you kind of build a profit margin into your product that allows you to afford the next batch so that it's kind of sort of self-sustaining in that way that you you're never stuck being able to pay out for products that you haven't taken money for yet or anything like that so yeah it comes down to making sure that the, the product can be produced for a reasonable cost really and making sure there is the room to sustain the business long term you mentioned a few times now this and um, the office hours cards project and you eventually sold like the whole business not just the cards right and so i'm curious how this happened so did you actively go out and try to find a buyer or just someone approached you and yeah, towards the end of 2018 i kind of looked and i got like a handful of projects that was sort of considering selling or maybe was interested in i didn't i kind of felt that i was kind of going into a new role at that particular point in 2018 into a new full-time role as a as an it manager and i kind of didn't envisage me having much time to spend on side projects so i kind of tried to look at anything that was active and, and posted a few projects for sale and various side project marketplaces and I think there were probably about three or four projects I sold, possibly more actually, on there, just so that I felt like it wasn't necessarily a clean slate, but I kind of managed to pass on the things that I thought could still continue to somebody else who could continue to run them. So I kind of posted up, posted up uh, adverts for these projects for sale and had various conversations with people and, and found some buyers who were interested. And they were relatively small sales. They were, you know, kind of like they weren't kind of like huge kind of like startup acquisition kind of sales they were just small side project sales it's possibly covered like what what they would have made in maybe a year or or six months or something like that and yeah i just wanted to make sure they were passed on to a new owner and and they could perhaps continue them where as opposed to me i would probably have just let them kind of either expire or become dormant or i may have started them up at some other point but yeah it was just kind of a decision i made at the time going into a new role two years ago that I would try and kind of hand over some projects to, to new owners and see how that would go, really. And how did it go? Because a story I, I've heard now many, many times from different people is that their project get bought, got, gets bought and 
really not long afterwards it gets shut down. So it's always puzzling why this happens, but it seems to be happening all the time. And even if the new owner paid quite a lot of money. So I'm not sure what is happening here, but I'm curious what uh, your experience are. Yeah, I guess that is that is definitely the case as well. I think a lot of people have experienced that. I think it comes down to is the buyer doesn't have the same attachment to the project that you did. You perhaps see more value in your own project. Even if somebody's paid paid for the ownership of it, they may not have the same skills as you do. They may not have the same network or connections. So if you sell a business in a particular niche and you've got like, you know, an audience of those kind of people and they're kind of finding it hard to reach out to those kind of people, you haven't, perhaps you necessarily haven't helped the handover or transition well enough to know for them to know how to continue to market it. So I kind of try and hand over my businesses with like, these are the forums that they kind of, the, the best place to kind of reach out to this particular type of person or these are the marketing ideas I was going to do next. And here are the ways, here are the places that I've run adverts in the past and, and just give them like more of an insight into what the product is and where you can find the customers and, and all the things that a person taking on the business might be missing. So it's not necessarily about just handing over the domain name or the website or the code base or the products. You've actually got to kind of give them the insight into how you made it a success or how you got to the point you, you got to, to help them give it the best shot. So I think probably, I would say probably most of the projects that I've sold are still working in some capacity, but I try not to check on them <laughs> because there is a possibility that they're not, they're not there anymore and they may have changed it. They may have changed the pricing model. They may have altered the product and it may not be the same product that I created in the first place. And it's, it's theirs now and it's up to them whether they choose to shut it down or not. So I would definitely say that if somebody is selling a project, they should be prepared for it to, to not, even if somebody buys it, for it to not continue. And that's up to the new owner, really. That's part and parcel of you hand it over to somebody hoping for it to continue. But yeah, once that, that sale is made, then it's kind of out of your hands and it may not continue for very long afterwards. So it is kind of sad. But also it's kind of you've given it your project the best opportunity. If you, if you know it wouldn't have continued with yourself, then allowing somebody else to continue and maybe even make it bigger and better than, than you did is, is perhaps giving it the best opportunity to continue in the future. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I just noticed that I completely forgot to ask you how much time you have. Because if you if you have to go at some time, I, should, I completely forgot. I'm okay, that. yeah, I'm okay for the next uh, probably next half an hour or so. So okay, perfect. Yeah, so, <laughs> I I completely forgot this this time. So the next thing I noticed when I looked through your list after this first project is that you have like a phase where you did lots of affiliate sites, and this is also a common theme about uh, among indie makers that yeah, it's really like a phase where most of most of them produce lots of affiliate sites in their past and then eventually stop doing this so i'm curious what your thoughts are did you learn a lot so i think from your list i guess you did make a lot of money doing this kind of projects but still would you say these were valuable experiences or a waste of time or so what yeah, are your thoughts I think, on? I think there definitely was a kind of a time there possibly 2012 or something like that where affiliate sites were kind of like the kind of uh, ideal business model so to speak where you set set up a site and you drive traffic to that site and through <laughs> kind of combining it with content mark combining it with content marketing so 
I guess the idea is that you can kind of collect products and into kind of like their own sort of niches. So I had a site on like all the kind of props you would perhaps buy for, for like wedding photography to sort of create creative pictures and things like that into a site. So it's kind of like almost like an Amazon basket where you've kind of, kind of got like a niche of products that there isn't a filter for on Amazon, but you can kind of put them together in their own little site. And I've seen lots of examples of this, like some, there's a site out there that's kind of collects all the similar accessories from the series of friends that people can buy whether that might be like a particular sweatshirt or kind of household accessories and things it's kind of like a way of collecting products together in a site that fits a particular niche that isn't widely called a category on on like so I guess for me they seemed like an ideal kind of business model and that you kind of set this site up and it kind of looks after itself and you can kind of repeat this this business model over and over again and I guess you've got to be really good at driving traffic you've got to either have the budget to go for paid paid ads to drive enough traffic to an affiliate site or you've got to already have a really strong community that has an intent to buy so maybe if you run in like an artist's community or things like that and you want to I don't know recommend particular art supplies or things like that that might be a good a good angle but you kind of need to have different pieces in order for an affiliate site to work well i think unless you are like stellar at driving traffic to a brand new site then it's it's quite difficult but i know a lot of people do still make a lot of affiliate income more on the kind of review side so joining up for like software affiliate programs and then like reviewing or demoing that particular software and for example like podcast podcasters have you know, maybe affiliate link page with, with the gear that they use and the kind of hosting software that they use and, and kind of more of a, like a recommendations page alongside kind of something that you're producing. And I think that works quite well. So I think the affiliate model has changed over the past eight years and going from being these sort of like content sites that kind of can be kind of spun up uh, with perhaps lower quality content to being more like personal recommendations and getting commission based on on personal recommendations and i kind of like prefer that that kind of method of like recommending products that you know and trust and then earning a commission based on that so i think what i've done in the past with like this i think there's perhaps another tab on my side projects uh, spreadsheet with the affiliate links of all the different tools that i've used so it's kind of like a collection a page where if people are interested in what things we use to make what then it's just a way of kind of collecting useful links in one place so yeah it's it's kind of although the the kind of underlying business model is the same of kind of getting affiliate commission it's kind of changed over the years and and for the better i think i think the affiliate model now is kind of more about honest recommendations and and kind of rather than trying to collect content and into a particular site to drive traffic to more traffic to amazon which isn't necessarily always a good thing <laughs> Yeah, I saw the list of tools that you that, that you added to your project list, but I wasn't aware that these are affiliate links. So, but it makes, of course, perfect sense. So it's it's really, of course, a win-win. And I think if you do it like this, it's yeah, it's it's a perfect use case, of course. And I think also the Google algorithms have changed quite a lot in the past 10, 50 years because now it's mainly like the big brands. Who are, who are getting all the traffic. So we have these like big winners like Wirecutter on the one end and 
the the other part where affiliate marketing, as you said, can work is if you have something else going on and then you add just affiliate marketing. So on top of it. So either it's super professional or it's just an add-on. But these really niche kind of stuff has probably died a little bit at least <laughs> from what I've seen in the past 10 years. So really interesting. And another thing I want to ask you about is a project you listed here titled Postal Candy. So you already also started a subscription box service. So I know this also was like a hype at the time. And <laughs> you, you did this with British Sweets, it seems. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was something that I wanted to try out because the subscription box model had been made easier by platforms that would allow you to take subscription payments. And I, it was kind of like an experiment to try out the kind of business model of a sus subscription box and see how that would work. And I had quite a few friends in the US who wanted to kind of like, I think with the rise of kind of like YouTube and like British YouTubers and there were kind of a lot of people like showcasing products like British products that people in the US wanted to buy or couldn't get hold of. So yeah, it was kind of like a, a fun, a fun short term project just to see if it worked. And I think on that kind of side of things that it would require probably from what I've read about a lot of other subscription box models is you need to give a lot away to get reviews. And I wasn't with that particular idea of sort of like packaging up kind of like common products from the UK that people want to, to try out. I didn't necessarily have anything unique that was mine. Obviously it, it, it could be easily copied when there were other kind of like British UK subscription boxes out there as well, but perhaps not so much at the time, but definitely now there are. And I think I wasn't, it would have taken a lot of like expense to ship out free boxes to people to review or to kind of get to, you've kind of got to seed that moment of people seeing the box arrive and it being, you know, unboxed that the unboxing of a subscription box needs to be kind of well-documented. And it wasn't just, it wasn't kind of, it was more a case of like learning how a subscription box model works rather than trying to make that be, you know, a profitable thing. I mean, it, it, you know, it did, it did generate orders. It was something that people did want to purchase, but ultimately I think, it was kind of like I could see that to make it work, it would require quite a large budget of either advertising or free, you know, being able to ship mass quantities of free product to be able to make it viable. And I also knew that once a competitor came along, there wasn't anything other than branding I could do to differentiate myself because at the end of the day, I was just kind of like reselling existing products and hoping there would be enough of a markup on there. So I definitely think the subscription box model works, but you've got to perhaps source products that are either particularly interesting or unique or niche in some way so that you're kind of adding value, whether that's cute, you know, you've either got to have contacts with like um, either beauty companies who create these like beauty subscription boxes, or you've got to have like a, a particular network of companies that want to, promote their products and then that enables you to source products for your month, the monthly boxes at a kind of a more affordable rate so that there's actually profit margin left uh, once they've been shipped out so it's quite difficult that one is I think if you could come up with a subscription box that was kind of like quite lightweight that was quite low on the shipping costs then I think that would be a, a significant win but um, I haven't yet come up with another another idea for possible subscription boxes that to warrant trying it out and see it, giving it another go. So I definitely think it's an interesting business model. I, again, it comes back to kind of like 
shipping physical products and, and enjoying seeing that kind of process happen. But, but what goes in those depends on your kind of own interests and, and finding a group of people who want to purchase something on a, on a kind of fairly frequent basis, really. If you can find something that is a consumable that people use up, whether that's like beauty products or, or food or, or kind of like coffee or things like that, I think those tend to work well because there is this natural kind of cycle of people wanting to purchase more at some point. Otherwise, I think churn and people buying like one box but not subscribing long term would be quite difficult. I think there's only so much British sweets that people can handle. (laughs) And I don't think they kind of need that coming through their door on a monthly basis. And it isn't necessarily even like helping people in a healthy way, is it really? So, (laughs) you know, I kind of like maybe, maybe should make it like an annual box instead of a monthly yeah, sounds like a really fun experiment. So, but also, yeah, it also sounds like not a great fit for an indie maker as a side project, but really something you have to commit. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think if you were like an artist and you want to ship out your own prints every month, or you want to, like, if you're running a Patreon, you've got subscribers and supporters on a Patreon, and you want to ship out something, whether that's like, um, I see a lot of craft businesses doing this, and shipping out like a selection of their products every month, whether that's like keychains or postcards, or if you're already creating like a, like a, an Etsy shop or you've got your own website to sell a wide range of products and you've got that inventory there and you want to create a monthly subscription box, that would probably work quite well where you, you've already got the inventory and you want to kind of like allow people to kind of buy it in a, a monthly subscription and get the latest things that you've produced then that would work for somebody who's already got a fan base and be quite a nice monthly recurring revenue, which might add more stability to a kind of, you know, a product-based business that might be kind of more seasonal if you've got like monthly subscriptions. So I think it can fit in quite well. It just depends on what other things, what the products and businesses you're running alongside it really. Gotcha. So another thing I noticed in your list is that you experimented also with quite a few third-party plugins, I would call it, like WordPress plugins and Slack apps in particular. And they seem to have gone quite well. So like what regarding the success ratio, if I just look at it. So quite a few got sold and you made revenue. So I'm curious what your experiences here are compared to like starting a standalone app yeah, I guess it's kind of like finding um, a niche or something. I guess at that particular point, there was quite a lot of organizations making decent income with like WordPress plugins and they were kind of the premium side of things is becoming more popular. But really they're quite kind of low cost products really for the for the work that goes into them or into them. You know, if you're selling like a $7 plugin or, or $15 plugin, it's, it takes a while to kind of recoup the development time back. And I guess I wanted to, to kind of experiment with like creating a technical product and working with developers to kind of like so if I kind of like designed designed a particular plugin or came up with like a proof of concept if I wanted to like make that code good enough to ship to production I might work with a developer to produce an app and things like that and then I think one of those plugins was one that kind of like I kind of purchased off somebody else and then kind of like tried to improve it a little bit and then sold that on again so yeah, I think it was kind of, it's an interesting time when the Slack directory was becoming, you know, it was being used by hundreds of thousands of organizations every day and there were huge numbers of installs. It was just kind of like spying an opportunity and spying a kind of a trend of where where there was kind of like traffic and seeing if 
there was something a problem to be solved there and i think the apps that are kind of made were kind of did necessarily did quite you know solve the problem there's one that was for kind of like delegating tasks through a team which was kind of like based on my own experience of managing a team at the time and that was quite fun because it kind of like seemed to kind of fit a problem and I kind of as soon as you kind of explained it to people I'd be like oh right that's quite quite useful because the problem with Slack at the time was that it would take you know five minutes to find out who was available and who was around and if you could you know whereas this particular plugin allowed you to kind of like post up a task and you know ask for volunteers and then people could accept that task so it kind of turned Slack into a task management environment and reduced down the notifications and and things for people which was becoming a kind of a problem at the time so I think it was definitely a business model I uh, was interested in but because I wasn't necessarily writing the code to production level myself I was kind of like designing parts of it and coming up with the functionality and and things like that I think it was also had cost involved whereas if I was a developer myself then it would probably be way that probably would have been a much more successful product because I had to factor in the costs of working with somebody else and the costs of somebody to support that to fix any bugs if there were any any bugs in the code base so by all means yeah I think for developers do have the upper hand now if they can produce something at zero cost and maintain it themselves but again you've got to think do you want to continually maintain a code base for, for an app and as an ecosystem like wordpress or slack changing you then got to change with those with those ecosystems around it as well so i'm glad i tried those because it was interesting to see just you know how you think something might be quite easy but there was a lot of maintenance and upkeep that goes into into that and also support whether you whether you're offering support for those kind of products as well so yeah those were kind of like interesting to try out and I think that's what made me realize that I need to pick a business model that plays to my skill set rather than just picking a business model that other people have been successful with. And I think that's probably what led me on to other projects that then were successful because I was then picking projects that were, were playing more to my sort of skill set of delivering a service and making sure that's a quality service and kind of producing content around that kind of thing really so yeah I think you you learn things you learn things about what you're good at through every single experiment you do really it's really interesting because I wasn't aware of that you outsourced the coding part this of course adds a whole nother dimension to the thing and really cool that you still were able to pull it off and even quite successfully because lots of people try it and then well it never it never gets finished and you can you can run into lots of problems if you outsource like coding work so i yeah. think yeah <laughs> they, were all shipped. they were all shipped and they were live and people used them and, and things like that and it's kind of like it would be quite easy to have like a code base just sort of sitting on your hard drive and think oh i never launched that or never never got never got released but because they were quite small small products that are kind of limited functionality like with plugins and and sort of apps that you can add in the slack directory they had kind of a really small tight scope that meant that they were able to be shipped rather than like a full SaaS app that would take you know a long while before you feel like you're able to release it to the public so yeah i think being quite cautious in terms of picking a small a small technical project meant i was able to to work quite quickly and I, the, the people I worked with and the developers I picked were had already had previous experience of either building WordPress plugins or or building Slack apps and things like that so I kind of worked with somebody who knew 
could kind of process better than I did at that point. So I was just kind of like putting my idea and, and, and the functionality that I wanted to have into the, into the project, really. Whether I would do another technical project again, I probably, possibly not, because I think I've kind of learned that I need to kind of work within. I like to kind of like retain, not necessarily the control, but I need to know that I'm able to fix the problems myself. And I need to know that there isn't always going to be costs associated with fixing fixing problems. So I like to make sure that I'm able to resolve any issues for any businesses that I am kind of like running, really. So after all these experiments, what I'm <laughs> reading out from your words is um, probably that there isn't like the best business model. Because, of course, I would like to ask you, what do you recommend to newcomers to new people to people who want to start making side projects what kind of business model do should they choose and i guess the answer is of course that it depends uh, depending on your interest your skills or whatever but do you have any kind of general recommendations like for example affiliate sites are mostly a waste of time productized service is a great way to start or i don't know something along these lines Yeah, I think that I would just start with like more of um, a concept, maybe a framework that people can follow, a method, something that can be re perhaps written down. So you don't even have to start necessarily with a product, whether you could either build a community around things, whether that's like if you're a developer or an indie maker and you want to start a community. And I think through being part of communities, whether you run them or not, you start to see what people are interested in, what problems are in those issues and things like that i think like if you if you're interested in physical products either again like paper-based products is a really easy way to get into shipping physical products and especially with like printful and things like that if you wanted to start your own greeting cards line or or kind of like or a particular branding you could come up with a particular brand that's got some kind of meaning behind it whether that's humor or kind of more serious kind of branding so I would start out more with like kind of the concept and a story rather than a particular business model. And then you can apply that branding and concept to whether that's a kind of like, I don't know, postcards that you ship out to people every month or a notebook that you create or an ebook that people can download. I think writing some knowledge down and selling that on Gumroad is probably the easiest way to get started. Each time you take a course or you learn something, whether that's video editing or podcasting or anything like that if you can package that information and start to get the ball rolling in terms of getting people to to download free project projects and free products first that is a great way to start kind of like building an audience and um just experimenting really kind of like it's difficult for me to say like i've, I've built i've tried 40 things but you should only start with one <laughs> i think everybody should try lots of different things and like make sure that it's not costing them a lot of money to do that and And you can kind of test a lot of things out for free now. So I would recommend people to start with, with free products, free downloads, and then move into perhaps paid products, whether that's a productized service, whether they can like learn how to get clients and market a service and deliver a service and the technology isn't necessarily getting in the way because you can always automate things afterwards. If you can deliver a service manually, And then you learn what that service needs to, to be and how that process works. Then you, you can easily hand that off to be automated or even put it partially automated at some point. So you don't always have to be continually producing a service. It can be more and more streamlined and become more profitable over time. 
I think the more important thing is recognizing trends and patterns and recognizing what people are interested in and what, what there's a demand for. And also like a recommendation is where things are becoming popular, you've kind of got to see what the fatigue will be on the other side. So, and what the difficulty was that recently. So one idea I came up with recently is that people were recording a lot of zoom calls, but then they weren't doing anything with the recordings. And I kind of predicted that there would be a way either a YouTube style kind of like dashboard to store your zoom recordings. And then recently over the past few months, I've started to see, there are these kind of apps that are coming up where people can kind of cut their meeting videos into useful snippets and things like that and kind of like so if you can kind of notice trends and patterns where things are becoming exponentially popular and then think well what's going to come after what are people going to do with the outputs from that service how are people um, using um, that so whether you look at like notion and how people organize their notion documents and, and things like that and see what's going to come maybe three to six months down the line and see if you can kind of like position yourself to be in an area that's soon to be kind of quite popular. So yeah, I think just testing and trying lots of things out and making sure that you're kind of using your own skill set to its best ability. So it's, uh, if you're not a coder, then look into no code and, and how you can build products without having to code. I mean, if you want to learn to code, then then do that as well. And maybe you do a hundred days of, of code and, and ship something as many days of, of that as you can so i think just trying and experimenting and, and and learning what's right for you and being sure to experiment with as many business models as you can yeah that's certainly amazing advice and when i started like my my whole learning experiment i really set out i want to learn coding and doing like software and all this kind of stuff but i've already changed completely my mind because what i'm doing now is mostly no code because i just noticed that it would be a complete waste of time right? It's many problems can be solved in much easier terms without using code. Yeah? So, so why should you code even if you can? So <laughs> it's, it's, it's even like that. And you mentioned trends. And this is, of course, something I'm also always interested in. And do you have some cool observations where you mentioned like in, position yourself now for what's going to be hot in like six months? And do you have any prediction any observation that you would like to share? That's a good question. I'll definitely have a think about that in terms of like, and maybe tweet a few ideas later on over the next couple of weeks. I guess like look at what's popular at the moment. And I definitely think note capture and note taking and notion and Rome research and, and kind of like servicing your ideas, which has been kind of like a big driver of, of my projects is that I've kind of made a conscious effort to capture my ideas. And then I've probably been not so great at, surfing that surfacing them and, and organizing them so i definitely think that's kind of like a hot topic at the moment of how people are better organizing their sort of thoughts and structuring it and daily journaling as well as i think is a kind of an interesting one so the people are definitely writing more which is why perhaps um, 2021 would be a good year for me to release the notebook and it may have not necessarily worked in 2011 when i originally anticipated it but i think there's these opportunities, they come around in cycles and, and it's kind of like you don't necessarily have, have this like one opportunity to launch something. It can, you, can, you can wait three months and it'd be even better or you can wait 10 years and it'd be better. So I don't want people to feel like that if they don't build something now, they'll miss out. I think you kind of make these sort of guesses and, and write, this, write these kind of ideas down and check back on them and, and see if you're kind of right. And the more you kind of get 
these this evidence that you're you're on the right lines the more you start to notice these patterns and trends so i think we've all got industries that we work in where, where we notice that like people keep mentioning the same product over and over again and uh, for me i think it's kind of like the note-taking side of things and, and organizing that research but i think in podcasting there's lots of different things that are coming up whether that's different ways of monetizing podcasts newsletters paid newsletters are kind of huge right now and what what happens when people start to churn from paid newsletters what's going to happen there where people get to the point of being fatigued by paying so many subscriptions for newsletters is there is there a way to like roll up newsletters into like one service so that you become a subscriber into like an online mailbox that then all these emails aren't necessarily going into your your own mailbox but is there a kind of like ways that you can look at the future fatigue of 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 kind of popular products currently and what's the next what's the next step for that really so yeah if i um i'll have a look through some notes and i'll definitely share some share some more suggestions as i come across them on twitter yeah at helen rights right is your twitter handle so that people can find you it's it's not something complicated okay so (laughs) the time (laughs) yeah the time is is almost over unfortunately because i have like a billion <laughs> additional questions because your list is so long and you did so many experiments. But I guess people um, can also not just, of course, wait for your book, which is coming out in 2030, but also <laughs> your, your, your um, selling consulting sessions, if I'm not mistaken. You're still doing that? or It has something I've done in the past. It's if ever, if ever, ever anything crops up that's of interest or if anyone ever wants to discuss, I guess the main thing at the moment is like, I just try and chat to as many people for free as possible because my kind of like a lot of my time is kind of taken up. So I don't necessarily have much um, scope for taking on large consulting projects, which I have done in the past and might do in the future. But at the moment I've got a uh, website called Feedback Fridays where people can just kind of jump in and if they've got uh, a free time slot, or people can just drop me a tweet on Twitter at Helen Riles. Perfect. So, yeah, thank you so much that you agreed to come here. And I really learned a lot. Awesome. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks for your time.